you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and it's that time of year again. If you're listening to the show the day it comes out, it's Halloween. Woo-hoo. And of course, that means I can only have one guest to talk about something scary in the Treasury format, Ryan Daly. Hi, Ryan. Tis the season to be spooky and mischievous. That's right. Uh, do you have any plans for Halloween? Uh, this year, not so much. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, we we took restrict or treating for the first time last year, even though there was a bit of a rainstorm. Um, and I, I I dressed him up as the Golden Age Alan Scott Green Lantern, uh, which was delightful, even though he did not cooperate with the mask. But I posted the picture, and Martin O'Dell's granddaughter Jackie O'Dell, who was very active in like Green Lantern fandom, she liked it and she liked the, the picture and gave it like an aw, that's cute type of thing. So that was very. <laughs> cool um but yeah i don't i don't imagine we're going out or doing much this year which is a shame did he did did he like enjoy it i mean you said you didn't like the costume but like did he once we got it we we basically took him to a parade so once he could kind of like he was a little bit overwhelmed but once he kind of saw it he's like ah, i'm digging this and mm-hmm. candy too yeah mm. so. i feel like i've been cosplaying as a surgeon all year so i don't know if i really need to <laughs> feel like to do any more dressing up for halloween i'm just kind of tired of masks to be honest with you. i don't know how Inge does it uh so uh, anyway because of course it said it's halloween we always do a halloween related show every october for treachery cast now of course ryan and i have already covered all of the monster or ghost related uh treasuries we did we did ghosts we did the house of mystery marvel unfortunately never did a straight up horror uh treasury they did they got close well for for good measure we did the astonishing spider-man with werewolf by night and ghost rider so that's and Morbius, Morbius, and Morbius was yeah, so they they got close with that one, uh, the orb, the my beloved <laughs> orb. Uh, but I so but I still wanted to do something Halloween related. So we picked something that is yes, treasury size, but it's not exactly a comic book. In this case, it is the Monsters Color the Creature book by Bernie Wrightson. This is a coloring book published in 1974. It is not only the treasury size, it's actually a little bigger than the treasury size. It's 10 by 15, not 10 by 13. And it is basically a giant folio of black and white images that you can color (laughs) drawn by the legendary Bernie Wrightson in 1974. I mean, like his prime. (laughs) And I was so excited to talk about this with Ryan because I I will say I I emailed Ryan and I said, hey, do you want to do the color of the creature uh, coloring book and Ryan's response was, "What color the creature monster coloring?" We had you, you, you had never heard of this thing, right? No, 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 no. Right. I was so, so that was even doubly exciting for me because I mean I know you love Bernie Wrightson. This is a perfect thing for Halloween, and I got to like introduce you to something that you had never seen before. So we're going to have some of the images for this amazing book on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. Straight up at the top, I have to thank a blog called Creature Buzz 
go to it's just creaturebuzz.com. There is a post about this from October 25th, 2012. Uh, somebody named Dan very helpfully scanned in every page of this coloring book. And you can download the images because they're like giants. I mean, they're big enough. I guess if you could print them out, if you had a big enough printer, you could print, make your own version of this coloring book or something. But it is, I don't even remember how I discovered this thing. I think it was back when I was working on treasurycomics.com, my old website. And I was just trying to do research on, is there any treasuries I didn't know about? And then I came across this thing. And it's incredibly obscure. If you try and find it on eBay, it's like 50 60 $70 because it was never reprinted, unbelievably. But this thing is just absolutely gorgeous and i have it here i have it laying in front of me uh it's it's, so the cover is this giant werewolf and it's him of course drawn by bernie wrightson and it's got this giant word says the monsters and giant and giant lettering and you've got this werewolf eating like the entrails of some (laughs) horrible creature which again suggests to me what what age of coloring book is this meant for this this looks like it could have been from uh, Wrightson's illustrations for Cycle of the Werewolf, which was the, the collaboration he did with Stephen King. Absolutely, um, this looks like that type of thing. Like even the coloring, especially like on the wolf and the shading and everything. Uh, the background is, is pretty simplified color; it's pretty flat. But that up front with the blood and everything, and, and yeah, it looks like just like broken ribs just hanging out. Like he just he gutted some woodland creature or something. <laughs> Hopefully not not humanoid, but uh, oh yeah, it's 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 so it's it's so. Wonderful. Wonderful. And and you're right. Like when you when you introduced me to this thing when I was I was already primed for this because when I met Bernie Wrightson at a Comic Con just uh, months before his untimely death, uh, I, I met him 2016 and he died in early 2017. Um, I got a print of his fr- uh, of the Swamp Thing. Um, it wasn't an original commission; it was just one of the stock prints that he had. Um, but it's a black and white one. And I I got it signed. It's framed on the wall. And I have been thinking for a while about finding somebody who would do like a professional coloring job on that one, mm. uh, just to kind of uh, be- because. I mean, it was nice that I got to meet him and, and got it signed, but it wasn't – it wasn't a, like thousands of other people have that same image. Sure. Um, so I kind of thought if I could get it colored, it would at least be something unique to me, right, uh, right. and it would be a way of kind of bringing it out. And, and because it's Swamp Thing, I mean, as, as beautiful as it looks black and white, you want to color it. And that's what we're going to be kind of saying as we go through this book. So, um, so yeah, this is, I, like as the one color piece in this is the, is the cover. Oh, this is so gorgeous, and I, I'm excited to keep going forward. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Again, the amount of detail he's going to put into these things. And mm-hmm. yeah, you'll be able to see them on the website. So the inner cover uh, is the same image as the back cover, except here it's in black and white. And it's a skull with an axe buried in it. Again, <laughs> I'm wondering what age group is this color of the creature book for? Uh, I guess it's for really ghoulish little kids. I don't, or, or maybe they were just straight up like, look, no, maybe some hippies will color this in 1974. But this is mostly just to have on your shelf to, to admire the beautiful Bernie Whiteson, Bernie Whiteson line art. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and this skull is not human. It's no. got, like, tusks, like, over and underbite, like, jagged, like, fangs coming out. It's got horns. There's one eyeball, one eyeball. in the skull, kind of, like, looking out, and, like, this almost pained, fearful look in the bone structure of the brows <laughs> and everything. Oh, so good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, then there's a kind of a contents, but not a contents page, but just, like, a front piece, and there's a little head with a, what is, what is that buried in the head? Is that a you know what that is? It looks like a handle of some sort, but I can't figure out what that's supposed to be. Almost looks like a bottle opener or something. Yeah, I don't know what that is. And there's two weird little creatures just standing there. And it, it, the one little creature has like a club in his hand. And if you look, the, the club that he's holding has a face on it. 
So we are just total nightmare fuel here. I think those are Rises. utensils. Like I, it's it's hard to see, but it looks like they've hacked. The, well, they they have they've cut the top of the head off, and they're like scooping out the brains and the insides of the head. Oh right, well right, you can see the top of his head. So it's like it's ground. like the it's like the, the the handle of a spoon or a fork or some kind of yes. scoop. Ugh. <laughs> Man, so. Uh, so the, the the format of this thing is on the right hand side page there is this you know these gorgeous ten by fifteen images in black and white of various monsters and then on the facing page is a little poem it says text copyright nineteen seventy four Phil Silong, uh from the, the you know one of the pioneers of the direct market so maybe he wrote it that's interesting yeah, I didn't yeah. know that he was had any sort of writing credits but anyway so the first image is the vampire. And I'm, we're not going to read every uh, every one of these poems, but just to give you a sense of what these things sound like. It says, the vampire, in quietness and damp, shaking off a muscle cramp, Count Anemia arises from his tomb. He has slept away the years. Now he rises like our tears to bring his nightly dread of bat-winged doom. Listening to the whispers sinister of this Transylvanian minister, your heart hangs in your bosom hard and chillingly. Then hypnotic eyes will glower and the horror of his power is that every bloodless corpse was taken willingly. That, boy, it's, uh, PJ Frightful's got to get on these, uh, i just got to say. Um, so, right, so what do you think of this first image of the, the just, you know, the vampire? It's, there's a lot of clothing there. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to figure where all the folds of the jacket. He's and got the multiple coats. He's Steve Banning in here. He's got a lot of coats on. <laughs> He's got the, um, it looks great. I mean, it evokes the the basic Count Dracula without necessarily looking like any copyrighted version of Dracula that right. you've seen. It's he's got it's like not long that hair. Goes, yeah, it's a, he does. He has long hair. Um, he has that sort of a cloak kind of billowing out. And yeah, whatever jacket, like it's like a triple breasted jacket or something like that. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's billowing out, but it's, it, the coffin is over the rocks. Uh, it's just so much folds going on, but it, oh, it, it looks great. Um, I did not know about the poems inclusion because they're not scanned with the uh, the pages on the blog. Oh, right. That's right. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I forgot to mention no, that. Yeah, no, yeah, they're it, not it, on the it, website. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fine, though. And it's, it actually, it's, that I find that very interesting, again, going back to the cycle of the werewolf that Wrightson did with Stephen King. That was sort of a novel. It's hard to even call it that. But originally, it was just supposed to be a calendar, a Bernie Wrightson illustrated calendar, and King was going to write kind of little short vignettes, little like one page like poems or, or, or vignettes or something to go along with that. Oh, I didn't know and that. And then it, it's over time it just it expanded and he write he was writing kind of longer chapters because Stephen King writes that way. Hmm. Um and, and they kind of fleshed out. Now it doesn't flow like a, a novel necessarily. It's just kind of like this weird collection of of short stories and, and little one X that are kind of loosely connected. But this and now that would have been after this too. So I wonder if like this was the idea. Yeah, he's doing this coloring book with poems. Maybe because of the market, maybe this sold well, or maybe it didn't sell well. And they're like, all right, let's try it again with a calendar, and we'll get some real talent. Not not disparaging the the guy, the the guy, right, Phil Salone, but he was not a professional writer like Stephen. Right, right, obviously, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. That was weird. I think Cycle of the Werewolf was about nineteen eighty, maybe. Is it something like that? Okay. Well, all right. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't get the sense that this sold really well because like, nobody's heard of it. Now, that doesn't right. mean it didn't sell well at the time. This was clearly a direct-only item. I mean, you wouldn't have seen I – mean, where would you have seen this? You know, not at like Woolworths or in a, like a color – you know, any store that sells coloring books. This would have been something maybe directly sold via Bud Plant or something like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how, how well it could have sold. But, I mean, obviously, I said it, it – uh, 
people remembered it enough to, again, it'd be on this website in 2012. Somebody remembered it enough. Um, I love this, the, the design of this piece, the vampire one, where all of the lines are pointing back to the vampire's head. Mm-hmm. You've got the lines of this, this rocky ruin and they're pointing diagonal. And then you've got these two wooden beams and they're pointing there. So the design of it is great. It's all drawing your eye to his face right in front of this sort of dark cavern. So again, it's a, it's a marvelous piece. I can't imagine how you would even color this, really. <laughs> uh, but, you know, again, that's not for, that's not for me to judge. It's just a beautiful piece of artwork. Um, so the next one is The Glob. Uh, again, this features another relatively long poem. I'll just do a brief portion of it. It says, a glob, a, a glob, a blob, an amoebic slob, slithering onto the scene, a spot, a blot, of repulsive rot filtering through the filtering through our screen. And this is an old man being assaulted by essentially the blob, but they can't call it that because you know, copyright reason. So it's, it's, it's like this sort of blob like creature, except he's got more kind of like tendrils and he's sucking this old man into, uh, into his gelatinous form. Oh God. Yeah. And like you, you can see it's like eating away at the flesh of his right. arm. And, like, the got fabric bone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like bone as it's being sucked in his jet ja- again with the jackets and the, like, <laughs> the way, like it's like at first I thought it was like a lab coat, but it's like, no, it's almost more of like a, a military uniform or something. It's just, it's, oh, it's weird. But yeah, this, this guy just being devoured, it, he kind of gives me like this feeling like he was some sort of scientist or official and he created this thing in a lab and it's gone crazy. It's going, it's killing everybody. Ah, so like that's like even without knowing like the, the poem or anything, you get a story about this just from the image. Yeah, and it's oh, that's incredible. Like I would have like so much like what like if you were going to color this, what color palette would you approach? Like what would you take <laughs> for the glob? Would you I, do like greens or yeah, or reds? I, like I would do a yellowish green, like a mucusy green. Yeah, <laughs> green kind of thing. Yeah, that's sort of how I say it. So. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I a great it. piece, and the background is nice. It's just this black to white fade, and there's some like stippling as it, as it goes down. Again, it's a really yeah. He really does tell like a whole little story just in this one little image, which is really cool. And this is something in the movie, The Blob. If you've ever seen it, anybody like The Blob doesn't get to do anything this interesting. He didn't <laughs> have very much money. He didn't get to like create little arms and shoot out and grab people and stuff like that. So uh, I like uh, yeah. It's great. It's a great great, great image. Um, so next up is the ghoul. Uh, the ghoul is well designed to all the other jobs. He's blind. He's of just a single mind. He knows what he's doing. Chewing, chewing, chewing. And it's some guy, I guessing it's the a ghoul in here and standing in for some sort of cannibal because it looks like a guy who's dug up a grave and is eating the body. I've heard of ghouls doing that. I've heard of like they're like, ah, oh, God, the first my first exposure to the concept of a ghoul, I think was in the Tales from the Crypt episode. Um, it had Steven Weber in it, actually. He was the main character, and he was, like, the, the journalist, and found out, like, there was this whole, like, um, underground, like, ring of, like, ghouls living beneath cemeteries preying on the homeless. Um, and, yeah, they were, like, they were, like, cannibals, like, feeding and everything, and, like, that, like, eating these bodies. So, yeah, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, of course, it's, it's a, he's, he's digging up a body to feed on whatever's left, so... <laughs> One of the things I, I like about this image is the in the front, uh, in the, sort of the foreground, we see this uh, cemetery post, and it's kind of leaning askew. And if you look, you can look at, it, you can see that uh, Bernie Wrightson is using a sort of dry brush technique, where you take your ink brush and you really kind of get rid of all of the moisture, and you're kind of like if you're doing painting on a house, and you know when you start when you, you do a couple of strokes, 
the first couple of strokes, you're, you've got a lot of paint on there. And then after that, you're kind of running out of paint. That's what you're doing with a dry brush. And that's not something I typically associate with Bernie Wrightson. His inking is very lush, very deep. And there's not a lot, to me, there's not a lot of dry brush. But here he's trying it out on the textures and it gives it a nice little depth. And it's something I'm sort of unfamiliar with his work wise. So it's, again, it's a great piece. I love the underlighting. Somehow there's lighting coming up <laughs> from the, from the open grave as it's all yeah. shooting up underneath the guy as he's chewing on a femur bone or something like yeah. that. Maybe he had a lantern with him. on the bench. There you like, go. Perfect. Put a lantern on the, on the casket or something. Yeah. I, oh, I love that detail that you, you brought to the, the little stone that's in front there. I, that is, that is really, really good. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Now the, you know, this image is oh, just, yeah. D- delicious. I like the shovel. Oh, t- delicious. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I had to look back just an earlier correction. Uh, the book cycle of the werewolf came out in 1983. So. Okay. All right. Oh, so then they made that movie in 85. That was a quick, that's why I was thinking. I thought, I thought it was earlier for the movie. So the movie must've come right after. Yeah. Wow. All right. So uh, next up is the mummy. Uh, the old museum closes for the night. The final guard turns out the final light, the shadows form, the moon outside is bright. The silence deepens into every part more quiet than the stopping of heart. Then slow at first the sounds of a rustling start. And uh, again, we've got a mummy here. And it, I mean, this is Wrightson going batshit crazy with the line work on the, on the, the, the bandages. I mean, he is going full out on this thing. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. This is what he would do with his illustrated Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like the, this level too. And this is great because without drawing a likeness, you see this and you think, Eh, it could be Christopher Lee or Boris Karloff or Peter mm-hmm. Cushing. It definitely has that hammer feel to it. Um, yep. Yeah, it's just oh, oh, it's great with like the the uh, the wrap kind of only one wrap covering the face, and it's kind of at an angle, so it just gets a little bit of the nose and the mouth covered. But the eyes are open, and they're looking to the side, and there's there's an awareness there. There's a mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> like I said it's, it's I can only. Ma- Again, I think it's something that um, I'm not an expert in his work, obviously, although I've been a fan of it ever since I was a kid. But there's some of this like I've always when I think of his work, I tend to think he inked himself with a brush. But when I look at this and then certainly the stuff he did for the Frankenstein adaptation, he's using a pen at that point and he's getting a much finer line. So, again, he's sort of experimenting with these images. And again, it's you have to think that he looked at this and said, yeah, I can do more of this for when I get Frankenstein and I get better replication obviously of my, of my work. Cause you, you couldn't go that detailed for swamp thing. Cause it would just get lost in the newsprint. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So next up is the werewolf. I have called us all together since we are birds of a feather. Werewolves are what we are called. Legend says that we start killing when the moon is full. How chilling leaving victims slashed and mauled. And the image we've got two werewolves, one dragging uh, a corpse, or not a corpse, but at least their victim, by the scruff of the neck, kind of, in this case, <laughs> his coat, dragging him up a a, um, a snow-covered mountain. And then in the back, you've got a second werewolf kind of faded off in the background. So, and you see way in the back, there's a cabin with a fireplace, clearly with the smoke coming. So you get the sense, you're getting a story here. These were- This guy was staying in this cabin. These two werewolves came and dragged him out, and he's about to be, uh, you know, their dinner, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, yeah, I love it. I mean, the minimal, minimal background and design, everything, like the lines and all that. It, it's because it's supposed to be a snow-covered scape and everything, which which means as a colorist, you don't have to do as much, which is a nice. There you go. Really. There you go. Um, all you really have to do is like the sky and then the wolves and the the blood and the figures. Um, I like the addition of of the the second wolf, and that's something that's. Um, 
I, I'd like to see kind of in more what what little werewolf literature and, and fiction movies and stuff there are. I, I like when people incorporate the fact that wolves are pack animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very social. So it would make sense that werewolves would be part of a family and a pack as well. Um, we usually, I mean, when you think of the, the Wolfman and the Lon Chaney and the legacy of those, it's always kind of a solitary monster. Um, but they would, it, it, like, if they would, as if it was a, a real phenomenon, uh, <laughs> they would be more social. They would be more family-oriented with an alpha and, and pups and, and kids and everything. So I like the fact that there are two here. That's a cool touch. And, again, right, for, he, he didn't have a stock werewolf design because these werewolves don't look like the same one on the front cover. Right, right, and right. They don't, they don't look just like the werewolf in the cycle of the werewolf, right. and they don't look exactly like the werewolf in Swamp Thing issue 4 that I covered <laughs> on Midnight with Herman Lowe. It's, he, he breaks it up. He does something different a little bit t- every time. Yeah, the werewolf on the cover looks like a Lon Chaney Wolfman kind of yeah, werewolf. Yeah. And this it one doesn't have the beast. protruding muzzle. It doesn't have the ears as much. Yeah, Right. This one, These guys are more straight-up wolves with, yeah. you know, standing on their hind legs and stuff like that. But, yeah, again, it's instead of putting them in a forest, he puts them in a, a you know a snow landscape, which is interesting. It's a nice nice change-up. And, yeah, if you're coloring it, super simple. Uh, <laughs> so uh, next up is the alien. This otherworldly stranger is a horrifying danger. He has habits that would turn your stomach sour. He has heart and soul of granite, and he roams from star to planet. And so we've got this alien, and this reminds me a lot of the alien design that Bernie would do himself in that issue of Swamp Thing that you just covered yeah. with Siskoid, where he meets the alien, because it's an alien in a giant dome helmet. I mean, like, it's right <laughs> out of Flash Gordon. He's got, like, the, the air hose, and he's got his little space rifle, which he's holding with his tentacle hand. So Bernie clearly loved the head in the dome look. That was yeah, his thing. Yeah, he, he loved did. It. Yeah, this is this is his more visceral, horrifying take on a very kind of fifties B movie concept of the alien, which is you know just thinking about what space exploration would be for for humans. You know, we would have to put on these these lumbering these big spacesuits and everything in order to travel and go to other planets. Why wouldn't aliens have to do the exact same thing if they were coming mm-hmm. to Earth? Uh, you know, it's not like the xenomorph from this. The fact that it's got this like suit and it's got like this, like a hunting rifle or a sniper rifle or something like that. <laughs> I was like, this is this is what the Predator design could have been. This is an alien <laughs> right. on safari. It's coming to Earth right. to kill people, to hunt people, and it's got um, like four arms or it's got like two kind of more humanoid arms. Although it looks like they've only got three three fingers, but then like these these extra appendages that are just tendrils and that's what is holding the the rifle up. So it's just uh, very unique, but also very, I mean, just the fact that it's in a spacesuit with like hoses and, and a bubble helmet, it's got this utilitarian look that would be almost a little bit more Star Wars than Predator or something. It's oh, fascinating. I love it. I love that he's got a little antenna coming out of the bubble helmet. <laughs> yeah, too. yeah. Dee, 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 that kind of thing. It's yeah, that's great. Yeah, obviously you're gonna color this guy green. Mm. Uh, I think you can't help it. I mean, it'll be another creature later on that I think is very green. Uh, next, I would, I would I would make the alien himself green, and uh, the the spacesuit would be like red to kind of give it that Jack yeah. from Star Wars look. Or yeah, there Jackson. you go. Perfect. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, so next up is Cyclops, uh, not the X Men character. Uh, so say the annals of time gone by. The Cyclops had one massive eye. He towered against the, the azure sky and ate occasional passers-by, so say the annals of time goes by. So, yeah, now we've got something right out of kind of mythology, and mm-hmm. he's got this giant cyclops, and he's yanking a tree out of a, uh, a cliffscape, and you see he's about to 
uh, attack a ship as we see there. It's again, this is right out of like Jason and the Argonauts of this ship going through a, a tight passage and he's about to, you know, wail on these guys. But I love the, um, the design of the, the, the cliff and the greenery. It's kind of different than something he would normally do. It's a little, I can't even exactly explain it, but it's, it's, it's a different look than what Wrightson typically did. And it looks really cool. Again, I like the, the, he's a mad looking psychops because his, his eye is massive. Like it's the mm. entire width of his head. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, like I was struck because like this one isn't like a, a universal type of monster. It's not werewolf or vampire or zombie. It's a it's a monster, but it's something from like classical mythology and it's a scene that is sort of like it's not a modern interpretation of the Odyssey because you can see that it's not a modern ship. In fact, it looks more Victorian. And if you went back to the image of the two werewolves attacking the guy in the snow, He's not dressed like he's not like he's not wearing like a parka or everything like that. It's like a, not a modern guy. It looks like a, a man in more of an older older suit or something. So even all of these pictures, they still feel like they're from a, a time a hundred years earlier or something like that. Um, but oh you know, yeah, yeah, like the the cliffs and the and the rush. Like I don't know if this is supposed to be somewhere in Greece if that is what he was going for, or but it's oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's really really nice. It's got a lot of movement to it. Uh, which is great because the arm that he's swinging by, it's got to be, he doesn't have the dreaded motion lines because Wrightson didn't do that, but it's, it has a lot of movement to it, which is uh, hard to do. Uh, and again, obviously a still image. Um, next up is the big one, probably for Bernie himself, Frankenstein's monster. His <laughs> stolen heart cuts deeply in his chest. His nerves, his nerveless muscles clench and give no rest. The new limbs take their toll. And again, this looks like the Frankenstein that we would see kind of in the adaptation. I think that Frankenstein was a little bulkier, but this guy reminds me a lot of if he had the if he had the, the big uh, parka, he would look like a Spawn of Frankenstein from DC yeah. Comics. Yep, yep, a little bit of that, a little bit of uh, uh, the zombie Simon Garth from Marvel's yep. uh, Black yep. and White magazines. Um, he's really skinny, really long legged, and <laughs> <laughs> like those arms too, arms down to his knees. Um, yeah, oh, it's incredible. Like, and again, like this is one of those things where you you marvel at the detail that he put into the monster itself. But then, just like the the way he the way he inked or or, or shaded or crosshatched like the the walls and everything, and the detail, the way he littered like the the books and everything in the background, and everything. There's a skull on a in the shelf because why wouldn't there be? Uh, it's just, uh, yeah. I think if I colored this one, I would have colored the background monochromatically because I'm just lazy. But like, all right, it's all just. <laughs> Just one big color in bag. It's fine. But yeah, I have to think that, that obviously Bernie loved Frankenstein because he devoted so much of his time to that big novel, the illustrated novel. And it's clearly like his, you know, the, his life's work all poured into that book. And so you feel this is the early version of that. He was getting warmed up for what he was eventually going to do. Um, I forgot to tell you, I I had planned if uh, you mentioned that your your scanner was messed up too. My printer has been out of ink for a long time, and we just haven't been able to refill it. I was going to try and print out some of these pages and get Reese to color one, <laughs> and we would add that to the to the gallery pages when you put up this episode. If if I can get the chance to do that, I'll I'll, do, I'll put it on the website. But. I was and that's funny. That leads to what I, I was going to ask you at the end of the show. Would you give this to Reese to color at this age? 
Uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on the book and give it to him because he's not, he can't color like that. He's not, he's, he, so far his, his, I hope, I hope he inherits his mother's artistic skills because Angie's a great artist. Um, I would love it and I, and I am not, so I hope he gets that skill, but if he does, it has not manifest yet. Um, but I would just, I would like print off, like what was scan one of these pages or print it off or something like that and just let him go to town with some markers. So you would be okay with the imagery of him seeing some of these images? That's a guy that's I'm sort of worried about. Yeah, I, he, about. I don't. I don't know if he would get the context enough to be scared of it. If gotcha. he was, he would probably just push it away and be like, "No." Like he, right. he, he would. He'll let me know if he's scared. Gotcha. Um, so I don't know. Like I, right. I don't know if I would show like the werewolf one where you see obvious signs of violence. Right. Um, but if it was just you know the, the alien, weird, the goopy oh, yeah, alien, alien, yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. All right, yeah, I was gonna. I wanted to. I love the idea of like of Reese just sitting in this book with his, you know, coloring. Nah, 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 nah. He's so funny. So, all right. So next up is Plant Monster. Take a pleasant little romp. Feel the warmth and lovely breeze rippling lightly through the swamp, through the vines, and through the trees. And here we've got a sort of Venus flytrappy thing, and we've got a little bit of cheesecake here because we finally got a woman showing up where you've got the plant monster, and he's got his he it has its tendrils all over a very comely, hippie, beautiful, uh, long-haired, uh, makeup uh, woman as she's uh, presumably about to be eaten by this plant monster. Uh, it's like, uh, again, like, where do... It's sort of it, like like with the unmen. Like, what part of this, the recesses of his subconsciousness came up with this image, like, that he had to visualize it this way? Like, where does this like plant end and like a creature begin and it's just mm-hmm. like like ooh, the thing that's like the the side i'm i guess like the right side of it is that are we looking at part of a face in profile like it's opening up there seems to be some kind of wet stuff dripping up is that like a <laughs> mouth that's going to eat her or is there some other orifice that it's dragging her into i don't know it's just weird <laughs> it's very uh it reminds me a lot of day of the truffets because that was all these flowers that attack people mm. and sort of or of course even more recently you think about like audrey from little shop of horrors that uh-huh. so but she's got yeah she's a very classically uh you know zoftig brightson woman she didn't he didn't draw thin women like bony women he drew very kind of belly dancer kind of women you know yeah, like yeah. very very big breasted very big hips i think that was kind of his style at least so uh so next up is zombie uh, from the close, familiar silence of his deathly final rest, he was summoned by the drumbeat to begin a ghastly quest. And we've got a guy who has tried to get one up on the zombie by spearing him through the chest. But of course, being a zombie doesn't do any good. So this poor guy is getting strangled as he's spearing this dead-eyed uh, zombie. Uh, and, and this reminds me, just, you know, the first image I think about is... Um, I, I, I walked with a zombie, the Val Luton film from 1943, mm-hmm. which takes place on a Jamaican island. Yep. And so it's yep. got that whole voodoo kind of thing. When you see that the zombie even has his mouth stitched shut and the little strings dangling down. Yeah, so the, the stitches are broken yeah. when they're just, yeah. 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 So what do you think of this one? Love it. I, I love it. I, I always, <laughs> whenever I think of something from this era, I always want to call zombies Zuvembis because that's what <laughs> yeah, Marvel. Marvel called it because they couldn't say zombie. Um, yeah, I love, I love that the got like this, this thing is skewered, uh, through the, through the chest and torso. It's coming out of its back and clearly ain't, ain't having any effect on it because it's still just choking the life out of this guy with one hand. Um, the, the deadness, the utter lack of anything in the eyes. Uh, and the, the lips sewn shut is the creepiest thing of all about this whole thing. Um, just like the, the non, 
the no the absence of life in the eyes, but it's still somehow animated gives it yeah. really creepy creepy vibe. So yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's great. Again, I like that it's a uh, and then you know before George Romero, zombies weren't things with their skin falling off and blood. You know, like zombies were more like. Again, like like in I walked with a zombie, they were more humanoid looking with just these dead eyes. And it's only really post Romero that we think of zombies now with like the rib cage exposed and right, like, right. Ah, whatever. So this is rights and going back to a more classical version of of the zombies. And you think this is other than Night of the Living Dead, this book is pretty much pre Romero. This is pre Day of the Dead, pre Dawn of the Dead. So uh, so and I'm sure Wrightson had seen I've walked with a zombie. I'm sure you see every horror movie available to him at that time. So Yeah. yeah. Uh, next up are Goblins. Uh, you are flying high. You are flying homeward madly, frightened badly. Goblins want you, so you run. You can see them very plainly, smile insanely, and they as they point at you for fun. And we've got this image of a guy running, and uh, he's under like an overpass and or like a little bridge, really. And leaning over the bridge are these four demonic-looking demons, goblins, about to eat this guy. And I don't know about you, Ryan, but when I first saw this image, like I thought that was Dracula. Because the guy's kind of dressed like Dracula. I was like, oh, well, cool, there's a crossover here. Again, this isn't, you know, Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Yeah. This, you know, it's not, it's not in New York. It's not a contemporary image. It's clearly somewhere in Europe. He's got that long billowing cloak. It looks like that, that Victorian or European kind of feeling of, of everything. Of, so yeah, it definitely looks like that. And then, and then the goblins, like, I, I miscounted them and I was like, oh, it's the demons three. It's Ab- <laughs> Abnagazar and, and Gast and, and, uh, what's that? Yeah, Wrath. Yeah, but oh yeah, no, I love it, and yeah, just it's uh it's, it's the guy running and everything. Um, oh gosh, yeah. yeah, I love that. Wrightson went all the way. You could see the uh, the town through the over through the, the you know the hole in the, yeah. the the tunnel, and you can see he's drawn the city, the architecture, all the way to the back. Like he didn't yeah. cheat out, you know. I mean, he did. You could yeah. see that there's this is a whole winding street. This guy's running on, and these. Goblins are about to attack him, and again, the line work of the trees is fantastic as well. I, I love the the lamp too. That he's even just yeah. like giving it the impression of that old cobble, like the lamp over the cobblestone bridge and everything like that. It's such a wonderful detail. Yeah, yeah fantastic. So uh, next up is similar to Zombie. This time we have here we have the creeping dead sing a song of graveyards and corpses in the night, getting it together when the moon is ghastly white. And here we've got three what we think of as zombies now. Uh, basically these bodies with all the flesh rotted off of them rising from the grave and they're presumably on their march. And I, you know what? I love all the headstones. None of them are standing straight up, not a one. And it's like, where is this cemetery? Is it on the San Andreas fall? Like what, like <laughs> did Lex Luthor bomb the crater right outside? Cause it's like, what cemetery is, what shithole cemetery is this? They're, they're also on a pretty steep hill. Like, yeah. look at, like, yeah. how, like, how would you bury somebody in that? Like, like it's not flat earth. It's like, <laughs> they'd have to be buried at angles and you couldn't have people gathered around those tombstones for the funeral. Like, mm-hmm. it's, but it's, again, it's a nightmare. The, the, I'm, I'm, Kind of, I, I feel like calling it a female zombie in the background or something like that. I don't know that. Maybe just the, like the length of hair, but hmm. that one's head is like the same size as the torso. Right. It's just like something creepy. But oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great again. It's a wonderful image again. And that is kind of what we think of as the Romero zombies is mm-hmm. that, that kind of look. So, um, so next up, this is a little more of a prosaic monster, axe murderer. <laughs> uh, beware of the fiend who carries the axe. Politeness and social behavior he lacks. He lurks in the alleys, in doorways and halls, awaiting the times opportunity calls. This is ostensibly the grimmest image in the book because 
it's, I mean, the plant monster eating the woman is pretty bad, but it's a plant monster. But here, this poor woman whose face we don't see because she's silhouette, she's in silhouette, uh, is coming in out of a, you know, around a corner and she's about to get probably beheaded because this guy is holding an axe about the size of a small car. I mean, it is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, Grim, I think, is the right word, and, and we're going to see some gratuitous violence against a woman. Um, though I, I kind of hope, I wish there was a second part of this where we actually see the light come over her face, mm. and there's something horrifying there. Um, <laughs> like he lured the wrong woman into this down this alley. She's got giant fangs, or something. yeah, exactly. Like she's like, like there's some like you know something jumps out of her eyes and like spears him through the throat or something. <laughs> it's just something crazy and horrifying. But uh, I, I mean, it's this one captures a mood this one puts you on edge and it's it's you know, there's tension just in this image so that's pretty cool um, he's a monster all right i mean absolutely yeah. yeah um so next up is the witch uh her beauty is subtle her manner discreet her voice is like music her breath springtime sweet her smile is endearing and warmly demure with radiant luster with a heart that is pure uh obviously we're it's all going to turn uh, momentarily uh here we get this is rights in straight up doing kind of like the witch from the ec comics uh, she's a, just a, this horrible image of this crone with this giant nose and this bony chin holding, uh, stirring a pot. And this is the only image I can think of from this coloring book that I saw repurposed. Um, <laughs> later on in the 80s, Pacific Comics, long lamented Pacific Comics, did a series of um, Bernie Wrightson-centric comics called, I think they were called Bernie Wrightson Master of the Macabre. Yeah, yeah, yes. I have one and of those. This, they, right, and this was the cover of yep. one of those images. So this is maybe these other images were repurposed later on. Uh, I mean, every every image says copyright Bernie Wrightson 1974, so clearly he owned the images so they could be repurposed. But this one, I remembered seeing this in color on the cover to that comic. Yeah, and I, I I thought I had seen this before too. Otherwise, I saw him draw something that was very similar. So if it was the same one, yeah, yep. um, I should I should go back for mine and see if he used any of the other images from this. Yeah, yeah. remember, but um, God, yeah, the line, the line, the detail in this again, like going back to how he did like the Frankenstein and everything, like they're just oh my gosh, like <laughs> the, the texture and the layer of this thing is just it's and yeah, yeah. I, I just there, there's like um. It's just the yeah, quality of this. It's like you're like her fingers are made of wood. You just think. It's, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's neat, too, because it's a super close-up. All the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're getting bodies or further away. And but here it is right, you know, literally right in your face, this horrible, horrible image. So, yeah, I like that he changed that. You're like, oh, and he said it reminds me a lot of the, the old witch from the Tales from the Crypt comic. I mean, like, to me, that's what he's doing is one of those three hosts and stuff. So I'm sure uh, this is what Witch Hazel from Bugs Bunny was supposed to look like. Exactly. Too. Yes. It's just harder to animate with all those lines. <laughs> so, all right. Finally, uh, now we're getting something that's bumping just up against maybe some <laughs> copyright things here. We've got Swamp Creature. He staggers as he stalks, decaying while he walks through the swamp, the fetid swamp, and wonders as he wonders as he goes. And, I mean, basically, this is a slightly less formed Swamp Thing. There's no other way to say it. I mean, he's even got that same ridge on his nose. Yeah, he's got, like, Except, non, except yeah. here, he doesn't have a mouth. He just has all these plant gook hanging out of him. But, basically, this is just a, a less code-approved version of Swamp Thing. 
Yeah, this is uh, this um it, yeah, it with like the the opening kind of flaps in the mouth with a dangling plant or vegetation kind of gives it like a like a look of like a crustacean or some sort of sea yeah. creature and everything. Only got the one kind of humanoid eye and then something else that's just kind of bulging. So it's it's asymmetrical, which gives it that that sort of malformed look. But yeah, it's it's a skinny kind of proto version of Swamp Thing. Looks a little bit more like the the swamp thing from House of Secrets ninety two, yes. like yep. that first one, which was more kind of a rough draft version of how he would look in the ongoing series. Um, but uh, he knew how to draw this type of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how could he not? You know, if you're going to get if you're going to do monsters, how can he not do a swamp creature? So you could just kind of yes. we'll call him Swamp Creature. There you go. That's <laughs> fine. How about that? How about you know humanoid thing or something or something like that? So so that's the final image, and then the last page there is a suggestions for the demented colorist. Whether you use weird watercolors, corrupted crayons, or macabre markers. I was always partial to markers myself. Be sure to use the following hues of horror and sinister shades for the most unnerving results. Gaping graveyard green, bloated blue, raw wrecking red, moist (laughs) maggoty magenta, lurid lavender, mausoleum mauve, putrid puce, buried alive brown, wormy wasted white, uh, purulent purple, yeasty yellow, blindly groping black, pinch of pincers pink, obnoxious orange, and grotesque gray. So, I think mausoleum mauve is Diane Chambers' favorite color. You know? <laughs> okay, mauve. All right, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, look, this thing obviously aimed at uh, the Bernie Wrightson fan, not so much small children that wanted the color, because this is straight up EC Comics, this kind of silly puns and things like that. But it's it, it, it fits in tonally with all the poems to, that we've read to this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, so... So, uh, so yeah, that's the that's the coloring book. I mean, overall, like, what do you think of this as a as a as a piece? I, I adore this. I mean, it's 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 essentially as you said, it's a portfolio of Bernie Rice and images. Right. Uh, it's him just indulging the creepy, weird, classical horror things that he just loved to do, and especially this is him at one of his strongest, most prolific periods. Um, the fact that he would do this, the the yeah, I mean, it's gussied up as if it's a like an adult coloring book, more or less for fun. But it's just a port- portfolio of his work, and I I love it, and I would love to actually, I, if I had uh, more artistic talent, I would try and color some of these and, and do something with it. But it's oh, it's just. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. Thank you so much for introducing. I had no idea what this thing was or that it ever existed. So when you told me about it, I yeah, my, every time I look at it, my jaw just drops, and I am yeah, I am blown away by the talent that this guy had, and uh, I love the fact that I've been able to to podcast about some of his work. And uh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's it's unreal, right? That this guy at the height of his powers. You know, did this kind of thing. I mean, this would be like, hey, did you, hey, Rob, did you know there's a Jim Aparo coloring book? I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? So that's, by the way, I wish there was a Jim Aparo coloring book. If anyone knows of one, please let me know. Uh, but yeah, it's great. It's just, a, it's a really fun. And I mean, you think about when this was when Swamp Thing was still running. When he was doing Swamp Thing, right? Isn't this? Wasn't he still doing Swamp Thing by this point, seventy four? Uh, this or was he just done it? I think he had probably just finished. Uh, maybe that's how he had time to do this. Was yeah, crank this thing so. out? You done with Swamp? Because I was like, how the hell could he have done this while working on a monthly book or whatever Swamp Thing's publication history? Yeah, um, and maybe he had had these pieces for a while. You know, maybe some maybe of these so. were done done earlier, and like this, this is a collection of stuff that he did over the course of a couple of years. 
Um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing book. I'm so glad I discovered it again, just out of nowhere. And I'm glad that I, I have one because it's, it's just super fun to own and super fun to have. And it's just great. You can appreciate uh, these uh, these gorgeous images by a guy right at the moment that he was at his really at his height. So he said, you can check out these images on the website, fryingwaterpodcast.com. And you can see the rest again, as I mentioned on that blog, the creature buzz. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining me once again for Halloween. You know, I always appreciate it. I always appreciate it too. Um, this, I don't know if this will be the last one, but if you find something else that we can talk about next <laughs> October, we got a um, year to find another. Yeah. Marvel needs to publish some sort of horror tri- Legion of monsters treasury in the next 11 months. I mean, Hulk was a monster originally inspired by the wolf, the werewolf, and and Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, you know. Okay, you can stretch it a little bit, maybe, something like that. So why don't you tell people where they can find you here on our network? Uh, You can find me on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I host several shows, including Cheerscast, uh, Fire and Water Records. Um, By the time this comes out, you may probably have heard uh, my latest episode with my brother, A Very Daily Halloween, Volume 2, wherein we talk about more of our favorite Halloween-themed songs and also some of our favorite Halloween TV specials that we watched when we were kids. Uh, Also, uh, for this month, um, episode 31 of uh, Midnight, the podcasting hour will drop on the 29th, right before Halloween. That is a very important episode for the history of the podcast and will include an announcement about the future of it. And I will leave it at that. Um, but uh, yeah, all star cast of guests on that one. So hope people tune into that one. Uh, yes, that ought to be a fun and yet also sad episode. But uh, anyway, uh, again, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I want you to stay tuned. We're going to play some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman versus the Man Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. hear us this is trey lawson and i'm james hickson anyone can hear this broadcast we need your help we've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named mr gravely and he's forcing us to review his collection of marvel horror comics stuff like tomb of dracula werewolf by night man thing ghost rider and so much more if you can hear this please contact our families tell them we can be found at you can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. <laughs>
All right. As promised, it's time for listener feedback, and we're doing feedback for episode 50 of Treasure Cast, where my special guest was Alex Ross. So let's go right to the website, finewaterpodcast.com, in the comments. We'll start off with Siskoid, who says, uh, Rob just gets the best guests. I'm not jealous because he does such a good job with it. And man, it sounds like Mike Carlin committed a lot more editorial sins than just Zero Hour. Uh, thank you very much, Siskoid. I appreciate it. Yeah, I... Uh, I'd say I was I was a little proud of myself that I landed Alex Ross for the show, uh, but I'm very fortunate that he was just so nice to talk to. And uh, boy, uh, for those of you that are out there in podcasting, they know how uh, twitchy Skype can be. Uh, I will tell you, I think uh, my call with Alex dropped out probably half a dozen times, and uh, I had to call him back a couple times, and he could not have been nicer about being so patient as letting me get through all these uh, technical hoops that I had to jump through. And uh, luckily, the show came together as coherently as it did. So uh, it was just a it was just a marvelous opportunity. But again, thank you, Siskoid, for the for the kind words. I appreciate it. Gothos Mansion says, uh, Rob, congratulations on getting the Alex Ross interview. While I enjoy hearing writers and artists talk about projects they worked on, I'm always fascinated to hear them talk about comics they enjoyed as fans. That lets us know that they actually are fans. Sometimes since the 80s, creators have been hired for their name, and they weren't fans. Or worse yet, they were just fans of a few books. Great job asking Mr. Ross, may I call him Alex, since he's only a year older than me, about treasuries that he enjoyed. Listening to Alex, I could tell he's a true comic book fan, and I think his work shows that. Uh, yes to all of that, Gothos. And yeah, I, I went into the interview uh, asking Alex about that. I wanted to obviously talk to him about his own work, but just the fact that I knew he was a Treasury fan. He was just a fan of the format. I mean, he's the most sensibly the most famous uh, fan of the format. And his quote that uh, Treasuries are the, the his hands down the favorite format of comics ever done uh, adorned the TreasuryComics.com website for for the years it was up. So it was it was again just a, a real honor. Little Russell Burbage says, what a great conversation about two great comic nerds. Nicely done, gentlemen. I had read about Alex Ross's reasons for not including Firestorm in his versions of the JLA, but his own explanation of it and actual referencing of the deaths of Arthur Jr. and Iris West Allen makes so much sense to me. I don't think I realized it uh, back in the days, but for sure, when I listen to Alex Ross's explanation, DC made some serious editorial mistakes back then. And I had to laugh when Ross talked about fans wanting a certain something from him that he wasn't willing to give because they think I was one of those fans. I I resisted picking up his and Paul Dini's solo treasury books until either Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel. I don't remember which. Then after I read and loved those two, I went back and picked up Superman and Batman. Of course, I had to have the JLA books. Glad Ross stuck to his creative guns and gave us the stories he wanted to make. They were totally worth it. True to that, Russell, uh, I really cannot wait to get to JLA Liberty and Justice. That is one of my all-time favorite treasuries, and it's one of my all-time favorite JLA stories. So I am really – I have no plans to get to it yet, but someday I'm going to sink my teeth into it because it's just – I just love it so much. Uh, Steve Given says, such a wonderful interview, Rob. It's always great to hear from creators who are enthusiastic fans themselves. And Ross's deep love of the DC characters really comes out in your conversation. I particularly liked hearing his perspectives on Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman. By the way, I'm glad you finally got some answer as to why he didn't do an Aquaman Treasury. I was sorry to find out that an immense talent like Ross faced some pushback on his desire to do the Treasuries and other work he, that he felt inspired to do. Good for him for staying true to his creative vision because he ended up giving us stories that are timeless and entertaining. Again, true enough, Steve. Thank you. Chuck Coletta says, congrats on a wonderful interview. Alex Ross is one of those creators whose work that just makes me happy. I've got three of his lithographs hanging in my campus office, and a fourth is on order. His treasuries of the DC heroes are a delight, and I bought multiple copies then and subsequently. Bravo. Now he needs to return to DigestCast. 
All right, let's slow down, Chuck. Uh, so Martin Gray says, uh, congratulations on 50 episodes and getting Alex on, and thanks to Alex for being a great guest. As regards to his treasury work, I'm surprised to hear Alex thought they, there would be resistance to comic books that look like comic books in the mass market. To me, it's a great Native American art form. Pretty much everyone grew up with it. I just assumed he and Paul Dini had wanted to do beautiful-looking, timeless, sincere children's picture books. I bought the Superman one and loved the art. I'm so grateful that we have Alex creating great comics. I'd love to see him produce a more traditional treasury with soft covers and word balloons. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is partly what uh, JLA Liberty and Justice was because there were word balloons in that one. But, yeah, obviously, any treasury that Alex would choose to uh, could, uh, participate in, I would be so excited to, to cover. Ido Bosnar says, uh, yeah, congratulations on 50 episodes, Rob. It's been a great ride so far. I enjoyed listening to the interview with Ross. His art style is not necessarily my cup of tea, but it's always fascinating to listen to creators talk about comics from both the creative standpoint and as fans themselves. Thank you, Ado. Uh, Mike Dynas says, Rob, congratulations on 50 episodes and getting a fantastic guest in Alex Ross. This was a fantastic episode, and it was great to hear the joy in both of your voices and talking about the treasuries. Like people mentioned above, I love hearing comic book creators talk about the comic books they loved as kids and how that shaped their lives. As a big fan of Captain Marvel slash Shazam, I loved hearing Alex talk about his treasury dedicated to that hero. That treasury is such a great story and, like Alex talked about, really distilled the character down to his roots, and I really love that book. Though I do feel bad that he took the place of what Rob wanted in an Aquaman treasury. Maybe now that the two of you are fast friends, you could convince Alex to do some new treasuries? This was fantastic here, and here's to 50 more episodes. Wait, are there 50 more treasury books to talk about? Uh, Mike, great question. Uh, as I crane my head to my left here in the recording studio in Fire and Water Podcast, uh, uh, New Jersey. Um, I don't know if there are 50 more to cover, but there are a lot. And of course, uh, after an episode like this where we covered a coloring book, I'm willing to stretch the format of the show a little bit. But but yeah, unfortunately, not to, not to talk about something grim that's you know, nowhere near happening yet. But yes, Treasure Cast does have some sort of natural end, unfortunately, because there will be a point where there will be no more treasuries to talk about, unless, of course, Marvel and DC start getting back in the treasury business, which Marvel kind of is, DC kind of is. They're, neither one of them has really gone full bore. But but no, we still have many more books to cover, so Treasury Cast will be around for, for quite a long time. Again, thank you for <laughs> mentioning that. But yeah, um, maybe 100, maybe 100 will be it. I don't know. We'll have to see. Chris Franklin from our, uh, our network says, wonderful episode, Rob. This would have been a great conversation between two fans of the medium and this format either way. The fact that it was Alex Ross, one of the premier artists in the industry, was just gravy. I really enjoyed Ross's treasuries and wish they would have continued. It's sad that retailers didn't embrace these due to the format. As Ross put it at the end, I think retailers are desperate for anything to get folks in stores now, and maybe it's time for them to return. Yes, I would love to see Ross back at DC. He gets the legacy, and the DC isn't Marvel. Going back to the Bronze Age, as Ross pointed out, the company's given so much of their soul up over the years trying to be so, and it's just never going to happen. There's very little of what DC was left at this point, in my opinion. And again, again, great episode. Happy anniversary. Thank you, my friend. Brian Linton says, what a great way to celebrate your 50th episode. Mr. Russ's insights were fascinating, and your shared enthusiasm for the Treasury format was infectious. I'm also reminded that I still need to get a hold of the Justice series. Thanks. Uh, and then Brian tells the uh, his uh, his big his, – regarding the comments from the previous episode, number 49, which featured the story Red Tide, he gets into his Red Tide story, uh, which I suggest you all read over on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. It's truly entertaining. Uh, Tim Price from the brand new Batman and the Outsiders podcast says, I could have listened to Alex talk all day. Me too, Tim. He has such affection for these characters, and I was just enjoying his stories. Congratulations, Rob, and well done. Thank you, Tim. 
Catherine Entropy says, uh, Rob, amazing interview, amazing opportunity, wonderful to hear that Alex Ross is the same kind of nerd we are, everything else, uh, everybody else said, etc. Now, on to my non-redundant comment. I think you two hit on something key to the Batman mythos and our understanding of crime when you talked about how we don't get enough of Bruce Wayne and the Wayne Foundation anymore. As a veteran, I can tell you, violence is often a necessary part of the solution, but it never solves a root problem by itself. Bombing and shooting people stopped the Holocaust, but it took many more years to sustain nonviolent work by a lot of people, many of them German, to change racial attitudes in Germany and Europe as a whole. Without that work, genocide could easily have happened again in the same place. And yes, I know it has in other places. Batman creates space for the Family Wayne Foundation to work more safely, and he finds the leads on where the work should be done, but it takes cops and teachers and social workers and parents and ministers and volunteers and the Wayne Foundation to actually change the conditions. That can be a source of exciting stories, too, and it's one they did a much better job of exploiting in the Bronze Age. Uh, yeah, uh, I said that was something that we hit on in the show, was that I really loved that, that Alex and Paul Dini brought that angle to it, that, you know, yeah – Batman solves crimes by punching people in the face and stopping robbers, but that only goes so far. And, and as a obviously he can uh, enact as Bruce Wayne a lot more positive change and a lot more sustaining positive change via his uh, clout, his money, his political power as you know billionaire industrialist uh, industrialist Bruce Wayne, part of the Wayne Foundation. So I'm really glad that they took that angle in the show and I and excuse me in the show in the comic and I'm I wish they would do more of that. I mean I know there's like gonna be like a another Gotham central T V show or something and I could see trying to pitch a TV show about the social workers of Gotham City probably wouldn't wouldn't get a lot of studio executives' hearts uh, fluttering. But I think there's there's something there. I really do. That would be interesting to see like in you know, I know that Gotham City will never probably be turned into like a shining metropolis to borrow a phrase because Gotham City's you know definition of this universe is this you know rat hole but it would be interesting that if Wayne Foundation could really start steering the city in a better direction through the through the positive work he's been doing as both Bruce Wayne and Batman it would be really interesting kind of turnaround in the DCU for Gotham City so thank you captain and again and thanks everybody for the kind comments I really do appreciate it. I will say I was enormously thrilled to talk to Alex. It was just such a great honor, and I was glad that we could commemorate 50 episodes of Treasury Cast uh, with that really special interview. So again, thanks so much to him for, for doing it. And thanks for everybody for the commenting. I really do appreciate it. And of course, thanks to Ryan Daly for stopping by uh, this Halloween to talk about the Bernie Wrightson Color of the Creature monster book. That was super fun. I love kind of highlighting obscure stuff like that, so that was really fun. And I, you know, Ryan's the biggest Bernie Wrightson fan I know, so I was so pleased that I could introduce this thing to him. I, that was such a bonus. I always assumed he knew it existed, but when he told me he didn't, I was oh, I just was so happy about that. So again, thank you so much to him for stopping by. So that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you want to follow the show, you can go to the website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to Treasury Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and now Amazon Music. We have our podcasts over on Amazon Music. So if you like to use Amazon Music to listen to podcasts, you can find Treasury Cast over there. Very exciting. And, of course, we're always talking uh, Treasury Comics over on Twitter at Treasury Comics. And then, finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you are a big fan of Treasury Cast, uh, go over to patreon.com and make a donation and let us know that you want to be mentioned on the show. I would very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next episode, go big or go home. Essentially, what I was trying to do with the, uh, the illustrations in Frankenstein was I was trying to limit myself to 
the techniques that, that were in use that at the time that the book was originally written, say around the beginning of the 19th century, which would have been, which would have been uh, steel engravings or woodcut. I was, I, was trying, I was trying to pinpoint uh, an archetype, trying to put myself in, into the mind of Mary Shelley, uh, maybe more into her time, um, of what would have been frightening to, to someone in Mary Shelley's time. I think painting is probably a more natural way of, of reproducing an image on a two-dimensional surface, um, whereas working in line is, is just goes completely against all the rules.